Hey guys, it's Sunday reading day, and I'm going to be reading from True Ghost Stories by Harewood Carrington. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Happy Sunday, everybody. Uh, Hope you're all doing well. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I'm also the owner of California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. Right now, we're having some weather. Um, the big, Another big storm has picked up, so we've got a lot of high winds. My front door is blown open a couple of times. Don't know how the power is going to hold up. But if, in fact, something happens with the power, don't go anywhere. Um, I have, you know, I, can, I, uh, I will do this on my iPhone, and I also have my tablet ready to go. So that, uh, hang on one second, get in here, there we go. I also have my tablet ready to go so that uh, I can continue with this. So I will read by camping lantern light should everything go out. So do, so if it does go and you still have the ability to have power in your area, just hang loose and just stay there. And I will be back on as quickly as possible uh, once I get the little mini tripod and everything set up with the cell phone. Okay. So we will continue the show. The show must go on. Anyway, uh, if you're watching from Facebook today, and a lot of you are, and uh, you like and hear what you see, Please be sure to hit that like button and a happy face. And let's see if I can do this today. The heart, look at this. It's not happening, is it? Just uh, the hand heart thing, you know. To hit the hearts, <laughs> that sort of thing. Somebody else, okay, I did get it once a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, yeah, be sure to hit that. And uh, already I see uh, Dad Cal has commented in the chat room, and that's great because I, I like to see that. And so does Facebook. As what it does is it puts us up higher on the FYP, and it, it, uh, it just sends us out to more people. Okay. Same thing with YouTube. If you haven't subscribed to YouTube yet, and uh, that would be fun. That'd be great if you would do that too. And same rule. Happy face is, you know, happy face, hearts, what, you know, thumbs up and comment because that puts us up again, that puts us up higher in, in YouTube's FYP as well. Okay. Uh, for ghost hunting, we are, a, uh, we are a real ghost hunt team here in Northern California. We're one of the biggest ghost hunt teams in Northern California. And uh, if you do think you might have something going on in your home or business, find us. Uh, we're over on you. You know, you can find us anywhere. Just Google California Haunts Radio, California Haunts, Paranormal Investigation Team, and we will pop up all over Google. Trust me. Uh, we're, our website is under revision. Both websites, the radio website and our current websites and uh, our, our ghost websites are all under revision. Those will be coming back up towards the end of the month. So I'm excited about that. How to get new host forms. So uh, that was a search to do that. And I'm not HTML. I'm not HTML. I am not an HTML person. Okay. So I like these idiot-proof websites. So I was looking for one that was comparable to the one I had on Yahoo. So anyway, I found one. So we'll be getting that up and rolling. Okay. And again, just Google us and you'll find us. And of course, you can find us all over Facebook. Facebook's probably the easiest way to contact us. It may be on YouTube. Okay. YouTube, we can do that too. That being said, today we're continuing. We are day five of reading True Ghost Stories by Herbert Carrington. And Herbert Carrington, I, I did, did some research on him because he, he, you know, he was a member of the Society of, 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 of ah, Cyclical Research. I hate that word, cyclical, cyclical research. And it turns out that, you know, because a lot of those guys were British that started that society. But it turns out he was from the United States. So he's an American paranormal researcher. And you guys got to remember, there's going to be stuff in here that's going to sound not so woke and, and whatnot, because these stories date all the way back to the late 1800s, and they all the way up to the 1940s, maybe even beyond. But just be aware of that. So if I slip and, and, I, and, I, and I'm reading and I, I happen to let's just, just blow right through something, referring to something that might be offensive, just please remember that. And don't go to the uh, Facebook police or any, anybody like that, okay? <laughs> because sometimes I just get rolling with these things. and you know. But he's got, and what I like about this book mostly, and uh, I don't want to tire you guys out with a bunch of gab, but what I really like about this book is that he, you know, he, he's looking not only at the scientific part, but he's also looking at the psychic part, which is what my team does. 
This is what my team does when we go out. We're looking at both the scientific and the psychic part of it, you know, the paranormal part. And he does that quite well, and he has these explanations in the book ahead of time. Like the first chapter was was all about the different types of ghosts and, and you know, and you know, what, what could cause the apparitions, you know, whether it's granite underneath the ground with water or whatever. He has all that in there. And the next chapter that I'm going to be reading is Haunted Houses. And so let me open that up real quick. It's Haunted Houses. And uh, so he's going to have an explanation of, of what exactly they think a haunted house is. So I think it's pretty cool. And let me enlarge this a little bit because I have ancient eyeballs here. So I'll get it to a point where I can read it. Okay. So, yeah. So he's got a thing. I'm going to come back on screen real quick. He's, he's got a whole explanation about haunted houses on here. So we're going to go ahead and read through that and uh, get this started. Now read for about an hour today. And then we'll stop. And tomorrow, I want to do a quick reminder. Everybody will be on at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We'll be talking to Brisbane, Australia with Mary Rod Rodwell. And we're going to be talking about starseed children. So I'm really excited about that. So we've got a, you know, we've got a great pack. We could guess. And I think you guys will like it. All right. So here we go. Without further ado, let me have a little drink here. And like I said, if the power does go out, if we do lose it, don't, don't leave. I will be on. Give me about... Maybe three or four or five minutes to get my phone, my iPhone set up. And we will be going out via iPhone with a lantern and my tablet. Okay. So uh, it's all set up on the tablet and ready to go. Everything's ready to go. So, all right, here we go. Without further ado, enjoy it. And, you know, like uh, Pamela, who's probably listening, she carries me in her pocket. She cleans house. <laughs> she carries me all, all over her house and stuff. So that's kind of cool. So do whatever you need to do. You know, sit back on your couch, sit in front of the fire, put... Put your fluffies on and uh, just uh, have some wine, hot cocoa, whatever did you, you know, whatever what relaxes you in the evenings. And we're going to read some ghost stories. So here we go. And a quick reminder: these are free. These are from these are non-copyrighted because non-copyrighted stuff went all the way up to 1940. Everything beyond 1940 is copyrighted. So these were written in the 18, you know, in the some 1600s, depending what book it is, all the way up to 1949. So. Yeah, so this is kind of cool. All right, Chapter 4, Haunted Houses. When phantasms of the dead constantly appear in one house, and there only, that house is said to be haunted. And in such a case, the phantasms seem to be attracted to the locality more than to the individuals living in it. This is usually the case in so-called, let me go up here, in so-called haunted houses. No matter who lives within them, they one and all see the spectral forms. But this is not invariably so. In the case of the great Amherst mystery, for example, given below, the haunting seemed to be associated with the person more than the house. So that we might so that it might be said to have here a case of a haunted man or woman. But this is the exception, not the rule. The cases that follow are all well attested, and the phenomena have been witnessed by many persons. The original reports, for the most part, have appeared in the proceedings of the SPR, and the fact were and in fact were carefully investigated at the time by competent investigators. The first instance is particularly interesting because of the experiments which were tried to which, which were tried to ascertain the nature of the ghost. And if many more such experiments were conducted, we might hope, in time, to know something about them. I shall begin with a carefully recorded example, which I may call dot dot the record. Of a haunted house. The case of a haunted house here given is very well authenticated and cooperated by six written and signed statements, as well as that of the original informant. The, the account originally appeared in the proceedings of the SPR, volume VIII, I'm not even going to go there, page 311 to, three, to, to 311, page 332, and is drawn up by Miss Morton, a lady of scientific training who resided for a long time in the house in question. She was well known to Mr. Myers, then Honorable Secretary of the Society. Very interesting experiments were conducted to test the nature of the ghosts, as the following brief account will show. All right, parentheses, and here we go. My father took the house in March 1882, none of us having then heard of anything unusual about the house. We moved in towards the end of April, and it was not until the following June that I first saw the apparition. I had gone up to my room, but that was not but was not yet in bed, when I heard someone at the door and went to it, thinking it might be my mother. On opening the door I saw no one, 
but on going a few steps along the passage, I saw the figure of a tall lady, dressed in black, standing at the head of the stairs. After a few moments, she descended the stairs, and I followed her for a short distance, feeling curious as to what it could be. I had only a small piece of candle, and it suddenly burned itself out. And, being unable to see more, I went back to my room. I would have, too. On the night of August 2nd, the footsteps were heard by my three sisters. Let me make sure I didn't skip something here. Okay, yeah, okay. On the night of August 2nd, my, the footsteps were heard by my three sisters and by the cook, all of whom slept on the top landing, also by my married sister, Mrs. K, who was sleeping on the floor below. They all said the next morning that they had heard them very plainly pass and repass their doors. These footsteps are very characteristic and, and are not at all like the kind of people in the house. They are soft and rather slow, though decided and even. My sisters would not go out on the landing after hearing them pass. Take this down just a tad. There we go. But each time when I've gone out after hearing them, I've seen the figure there. On the evening of August 1st, we were sitting in the drawing room with the gas lit, but the shutters not shut. The light outside getting dusk, my brothers and a friend, having just given up tennis, finding it too dark. My elder sister, Mrs. E, and myself both saw the figure on the balcony outside, looking in at the window. She stood there some minutes, then walked to the end and back again, after which she seemed to disappear. She soon after came into the drawing room when I saw her, but my sister did not. The apparitions were always of exactly the same type, seen in the same places by the same people at varying intervals. The footsteps continued and were heard by several visitors and new servants who had taken the places of those who had left, as well as by myself, four sisters and brothers, in all by about 20 people, many of them not having previously heard of the apparitions and sounds. Other sounds were also heard in addition, which seemed gradually to increase in intensity. They consisted in, what, in, in walking up and down on the second floor landing, a bumps against the doors of the bedrooms, and of the handles of the doors turning. The bumps against the doors were so marked as to terrify a new servant, who had heard nothing of the haunting, into the belief that burglars were breaking into her room. During the year, at Mr. Meyer's suggestion, I kept a photographic camera, kind of constantly ready to try to photograph the figure. But on the few occasions I, I was able to do so, I got no result. At night, usually only by candlelight, a long exposure would be necessary for so dark a figure. And this I could not, I, I could not obtain. I also tried to communicate with the figure, constantly speaking to it and asking it to make signs, if not able to speak, but with no result. I also tried especially to touch her, but did not succeed. On cornering her, so I did once or twice, she vanished. One night, my sister E went up to her room on the second story, but as she passed the room where my two sisters L and M were sleeping, they opened the door to say that they had heard noises and also seen what they described as a flame of a candle, without candle or handle visible, cross the room diagonally from corner to corner. Two of the maids opened the doors of their two bedrooms and said that they also heard noises. They all five stood at their doors with their lighted candles for some little time. They all heard steps walking up and down the landing between them. As they passed, they felt a sensation which was described as a cold wind, though their candles were not blown out. They saw nothing. The steps then descended the stairs, reascended again, descended, and did not return. The figure became much, much less substantial on its later appearances. Up to about 1886, it was so solid and lifelike that it was often mistaken for a real person. It gradually became less distinct, and at times, it intercepted the light. We've not been able to ascertain if it cast a shadow. I should mention that it has been seen through window glass, and that I myself wear glasses habitually, though none of the other percipients do so. The upper part of the figure always left a more distinct impression than the lower, but this may be partially due to the fact that one naturally looks at people's faces before their feet. Proofs of your materiality. One, I have several times fastened fine, set, fine settings across the stairs at various heights before going to bed. 
but after all others had gone up to their rooms. I have twice, at least, seen the figure pass through the cords, leaving them intact. Two, the sudden and complete disappearance of the figure while still in full view. Three, the impossibility of touching the figure. Four, it has appeared in a room where the doors were with the doors shut. Conduct of animals in the house. We have strong grounds for believing that the apparition was seen by two dogs. Twice I remember seeing our dog suddenly run up to the mat at the foot of the stairs in the hall, wagging his tail and moving his back in the way dogs do when expecting to be caressed. It jumped up, fawning as it would do if a person was standing there, but suddenly slunk away with its tail between its legs and retreated trembling under a sofa. We were all strongly under the impression that they had seen, a, seen the figure. Its action was peculiar, as was much more striking to an onlooker than it should and sorry, and was much more striking to an onlooker than it could possibly appear from the description. In conclusion, as to the feelings aroused by the presence of the figure, it is very difficult to describe them. On the first few occasions, I think the feeling of awe is something unknown, mixed with a strong desire to know more about it, predominated. Later, when I was able to analyze my feelings more closely, and the first novelty had gone off, I was conscious of a feeling of loss, as if I had lost power to the figure. Most of the other precipitants, precipients speak of a feeling of cold wind, but I myself have not experienced this. Okay, B dot 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 house. Okay. This is a very famous case of a haunting which was investigated by Sir Oliver Lodge, Mr. F.W.H. Myers, Colonel Taylor, a specialist on haunted houses, Miss X, the Marquis Butte, etc. The chief reports of the occurrence are due to the last three named persons, and from the journal kept during their occupancy of the house, the following extracts are made. February 4th, Thursday. Let me grab some water real quick. wet my whistle. February 4th, Thursday, I awoke suddenly, just before 3 a.m. Miss Moore, who had been lying awake for over two hours, said, I want you to stay awake and listen. Almost immediately, I was startled by a loud clanging sound, which seemed to resound throughout the house. The mental image it brought to my mind was as of a long metal bar, such as I have seen near iron foundries being struck at intervals with a wooden mallet. The noise was distinctly that of a metal, metal being struck with wood. It seemed to come diagonally across the house. It sounded very loud, though distinct. And the idea that any inmate of the house should not hear it seemed preposterous. I also had an experience this morning, which may have been purely subjective, but which should be recorded. Around 10 a.m., I was writing in the library, face, face to light, back to fire. Mrs. W. was in the room and addressed me once or twice, but I was aware of not being responsive. And, as I was, well, because I was much occupied, I wrote on, and presumably felt a distinct but gentle push against my chair. I thought it was the dog. Minutes felt, okay. See, it jumps around, hang on. Okay, I thought it was the dog. I thought it was the dog and looked down, my bad. But he was not there. I went on writing, and in a few minutes felt a push, firm and decided, against myself, which moved me on my chair. I thought it was Mrs. W., who, having spoken and obtained my, no answer, was reminding me of her presence. I looked backward with an ex exclamation. The room was empty. She came in presently and called my attention to the dog, who was gazing intently from the hearth rug at the place where I had expected to see him. As the day began with the above, and as I had had a quiet rest, I went to the copse at dusk. The moon was bright, and the twilight lingered, we waited about in the afternoon till it get darker, but it was still far from dark. Then we made our way to the glen, to the glen, Miss Moore, Miss Langton, and myself. I saw Ishbel and Margaret in the old spot across the burn. Two spirits who had been seen about the house several times before. Ishbel was on her knees in the attitude of weeping. Margaret apparently reasoning with her in a low voice, to which Ishbel replied very occasionally. I could not hear what was said from the noise of the burn. We waited for perhaps 10 or 15 minutes. They had appeared when I had been there 
for two or for three or four. When we regained the avenue in silence, Miss Moore asked Miss Miss Langton, "What did you see?" She had been told nothing except that the colonel, who did not know the details then, had said in her presence something about a couple of nuns. She said, "I saw nothing, but I heard a low talking." Question further, she said it seemed close behind. The glen is so narrow that this might. Where did I go? Okay, that this might be quite consistent with what I heard and saw. Miss Moore heard a murmuring voice, and is quite certain it was not the burn. She is less suggestible than almost anyone I know. The dog ran up while we were there, pointed, and ran straight for the two women. He afterwards left us, and we found him barking in the glen. He is a dog who hardly ever barks. We went up among the trees where he was and could find no cause. This morning's phenomena is the most incomprehensible I have yet known. I heard the banging sounds after we were in bed last night, early this morning, around 5.30. I was awakened by them. They continued for nearly an hour. Then another sound began in the room. It might have been made by a very lively kitten jumping and pouncing, or even by a very large bird. There was a fluttering noise, too. It was close, exactly opposite the bed. Miss Moore woke up, and we heard the noise going on until nearly 8 o'clock. I drew up the blinds and opened the windows wide. I sought all over the room, looking into cupboards and under the furniture. We cannot guess at any possible explanation. 3. This fluttering noise, as of a bird, is very often met with in the literature of the occult and is typical of haunted houses. In the famous case of Lord Littleton, for instance, this was recorded and was said to announce his death. He died three days later in bed. A few weeks later, Miss X wrote in her journal, The general tone of things is disquieting and new in our experience. Hitherto, in our first occupation, the phenomena affected one as melancholy, depressing, and perplexing. But now all, quite independently, say the same thing, that the influence is evil and horrible. Even poor little Spooks, the dog, who was never terrified before, has been since our return here. The worn faces at breakfast are really a dismal sight. Soon after this, the investigators left the house. Okay. Willing Willington Mill. This is one of the most famous haunted houses on record. The case has been described in various books on ghosts, the most complete account being contained in the Journal of the Cyclical Research Society. Mr. Proctor lived for several years in the haunted mill and got quite used to the apparitions which stalked about the place at all hours. Visitors, however, did not like them as much as, as, much as he did. The following extracts will suffice to explain the general character of the haunting in this case. When two of Mrs. Proctor's sisters were staying at the mill on a visit, their bed was suddenly violently shaken. The curtains hoisted up all around to their tester and then as rapidly let down again. And this happened again in rapid succession. The curtains were taken off the next night with the result that they both saw a female figure, a mysterious substance, and a grayish-blue hue come out of the wall at the head of the bed and lean over them. They both saw it distinctly. They saw it come out and go back again into the wall. Mrs. Davidson's sister-in-law had a curious experience on one occasion. One evening, she was putting one of the bedrooms right and looking toward the dressing table, saw what she supposed was a white towel hanging on, uh, lying on the ground. She went to pick it up, but imagined her surprise when she found that it rose up on its own and went up behind the dressing table over the top, down on the floor across the room, disappeared under the door, and was heard to descend the stairs with a heavy step. The noise which it made in doing so was distinctly heard by Mrs. Proctor and others in the house. On one occasion, Mr. Mann, the old mill foreman, foreman with his wife and daughter, and Mrs. Proctor's sister, all four saw the figure of a bald-headed old man in a flowing robe like a surplice guiding backwards and forwards about three feet from the floor, level with the bottom of the second-story window. He then stood still in the middle of the window, and part of the body, which appeared quite luminous, showed through the blind. While in that position, the framework of the window was visible, while the body was as brilliant as a star. 
and diffused a radiance all around. Then it turned a bluish tinge and gradually faded away from the head downwards. The children, however, were the chief ghost seers. On one occasion, one of the little girls came to Mrs. Davison and said, There is a lady sitting on the bed in Mama's bedroom. She has eye holes but no eyes, and she looks so hard at me. On another occasion, a boy of two years old was charmed with the ghost and laughed and kicked, crying out. And there's somebody pee-pee, okay? On one occasion, the mother saw through the bed curtain a figure cross the room to the table on which the light was burning, turn up the snuffers, and snuff out the candle. Several experiments were made with a clairvoyant by the name of Jane to ascertain the cause of the mystery. In the mesmeric trance, she described the house accurately, described the nature of the disturbances which were going on within it, and stated that the chief cause of the trouble was to be found in the cellar. This was not verified. The full story, as narrated, is certainly one of the most curious to be found anywhere. The Great Amherst Mystery This is one of the most remarkable cases on record. It is a case of a haunted house in which many physical manifestations of all sorts took, pla of all sorts took place and were observed by nearly a hundred persons, all of whom testified as to the reality of the facts. The house in question is situated in, ha in, in Amherst, north, south, something hence the name, residing in the small house where as many events occurred, Mr. and Mrs. Teed, their children, Willie, aged five years, and George, aged 17 months, his wife's two sisters, Jenny and Esther Cox, also lived with them. Okay. Esther being the person around whom nearly all the phenomena centered. John Teed and William Cox also boarded at the house, brothers of Mr. and Mrs. Teed, respectively. The manifestations began in a very peculiar manner. The two girls who had just gone to bed, because they slept together, were on the point of falling asleep when Esther suddenly jumped up out of bed with a scream, exclaiming that there was a mouse in the mattress. A careful search failed, however, to reveal the presence of any mouse. The same thing happened the next night, and when the girls got up to search for the mouse, a pasteboard box, which was under the bed, jumped up in the air and fell over on its side. They decided to say nothing about it, got, got into bed again, and were soon asleep. The next night, manifestations began in earnest. Esther began to swell, her body became puffed all over, and she thought she was going to burst. She screamed with pain. Just then, however, three terrific roots. Three, three terrific reports shook the room, and the swelling suddenly subsided. She was placed in bed, but no sooner had she been placed upon it than all the bedclothes flew off of her and settled in the far corner of the room. They could see them passing through the air by the light of the kerosene lamp, which was lighted and standing on the table, <clears throat> and both screamed, as only scared girls can, and then Jenny fainted. The bedclothes were replaced. No sooner was this done than the pillows flew out from under her head and landed in the center of the floor. It was replaced, but again flew out, hitting Mr. T in the face. Three deafening reports then shook the house, after which all manifestations ceased for the night. The next night, these, manifesta these manifestations were repeated. The bedclothes flew off in view of all, and in the midst of all this, the sound of scratching became audible, as of a metallic object scraping plaster. All looked at the wall whence the sound of writing came from, when, to their great astonishment, there could be plain, plainly read these words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. Every person in the room could see the writing plainly, and yet, but a moment before, nothing was to be seen but the plain calcimine wall. These things continued day after day, and were seen by many persons. Articles would be thrown about the house. Dr. Cariti, a family physician, saw a bucket of cold water become agitated and, to all appearances, boil while standing on the kitchen table. A voice was heard in the atmosphere of the house talking to Esther and telling her all manner of horrible things. Soon after this, from the consternation of all present, all saw a lighted match fall from the ceiling to the bed, having come out of the air, which would certainly have set the bed clothing on fire. Had not Jenny put it out instantly. 
During the next two minutes, eight or ten lighted matches fell on the bed and about the room, out of the air. They were all extinguished before anything could be set fire by them. This fire raising continued for several days. The family would smell smoke, and on running up into the bedroom, they would find a bundle of clothing placed in the center of the floor, blazing. Or they would descend to the cellar, and there find a pile of shavings alight and blazing merrily. They lived in constant danger of having the house burn over their heads. Soon after this, things got so bad that Esther Cox had to leave home and went to visit a friend by the name of, of White in the hope that the manifestations would cease. When she was removed from her own home, okay, when she was removed from her own home, for four weeks things went well. Then they began again just as ever. Knocks and raps were heard all over the house, which answered the questions asked them and told the amount of money people had in their pockets, etc. Articles of furniture were thrown about, voices sounded, and worst of all, Esther now began to see the ghost and described it to those about her. Among other terrifying phenomena which took place at Mr. White's house, the following should be mentioned. A clasp knife belonging to little Frederick White was taken from his hand while he was whittling something by the devilish ghost who instantly stabbed Esther in the back with it leaving the knife sticking in the wound, which was bleeding profusely. Frederick pulled the bloody knife from the wound, wiped it, closed it, and put it in his pocket, which he had no sooner done than the ghost obtained possession of it again and, quick as a flash of lightning, stuck it into the same wound. Some person tried the experiment of placing the three or four large iron spy spikes on Esther's lap while she was seated in the dining room, dining saloon. To the unutterable astonishment of Mr. White, Frederick, and other persons present, the spikes were not instantly removed, as it was expected they would be, but instead remained on her lap until they became too hot to be handled with comfort, when they were thrown by the ghost to the far, far end of the saloon, a distance of 20 feet. This fact was fully corroborated. It was at this stage of the proceedings that the spot was visited by Walter Hubble, the actor, who remained some time in Amherst, studying the case and who has written a whole book about it, The Great Amherst Mystery. On the night of his arrival, they all sat around the table in full, in full light to see what they could see, and knocks and raps resounded immediately. We could, see, we could all hear even the scratching sound of invisible human fingernails and the dull sounds produced by the hands as they, as they rubbed the table and struck it with invisible clenched fists in knocking in response to questions. The next day, Mr. Hubble records the following facts, among others. I had been seated about five minutes when, to my great astonishment, my umbrella was thrown a distance of 16 feet, passing over my head in a strange flight. And almost at the time, at the same instant, a large carving knife came whizzing through the air, passing over Esther's head, who was just then coming out of the pantry with a large dish in both hands and fell in front of her, near me, having come from behind her out of the pantry. I naturally went to the door and looked in, but no person was there. After dinner, I laid down on the sofa in the parlor. Esther was in the room seated near the center in a rocking chair. I did not sleep, but lay with my eyes only partially closed so that I could see her. While lying there with a the large glass of glass paperweight weighing, weighing fully a pound, came whizzing through the air from the corner of the room where I had previously noticed it on, on an ornamental shelf a distance of some 12 or 15 feet from the sofa. Had it struck my head, I should surely have been killed. So great was the force with which it was thrown. On Monday, June 23rd, they commenced again with great violence. At breakfast, the lid of the sugar bowl was heard to fall on the floor. Mrs. Teed, Esther, and myself searched for it for fully five minutes and had abandoned our search as useless when all three saw it fall from the ceiling. I saw it just before it fell, and it was at the moment suspended in the air about one foot from the ceiling. No one was within five feet of it at the time. The table knives were then thrown upon the floor. The chairs pitched over, and after breakfast the dining table fell over on its side. Rugs upon the floor were slid about, and the whole room literally turned into a, turned into a pandemonium, so filled with dust that I went into the parlor. Just as I got inside the parlor, door a large flower pot containing a plant in full bloom was taken from among Jenny's flowers on the stand near the window and in a second a tin pail 
with a handle, was brought half-filled with water from the kitchen and placed beside the plant on the floor, both in the center of the parlor, and put there by a ghost. Just think of such a thing happening while the sun was shining, and only a few minutes before I had seen the same tin pail from the dining room hanging on, on a nail in the kitchen, emptied. And yet people say, and thousands believe, that there are no haunted houses. What a great mistake they make in so asserting. But then they never lived in a genuine in a genuine one where there was an invisible power that had a full and complete sway. By all the de- by, by all the demons by all the demons. Okay, see now they're saying they're demons, which makes sense. When I read the accounts now when or when I read the accounts now in my journal, from which my experience is copied, I am almost speechless with wonder that I ever lived to behold such sights. On this same day, Esther's face was slapped by the ghosts, so that the marks of fingers could be plainly seen, just exactly as if a human hand had slapped her face. These slaps could be plainly heard by all present. I heard them distinctly, time and again. On Thursday, June 26th, Jenny and Esther told me that the night before, Bob, the demon, I guess they named it, had been in their room again. They stated he had he had stuck with them, stuck them with pins and marked them from head to foot with crosses. I saw some of the crosses which were bloody marks, scratched upon their hands, necks, and arms. It was a sad sight. During the entire day, I was busy pulling pulling pins. Hang on one second. I moved it up. That's my bad. Okay, I'm so sorry. I was busy pulling pins out of Esther. They came out of the air from all quarters and were stuck in all the exposed portions of her person, even the head and inside her ears. Maggie, the ghost, took quite an interest in me and came to my room at night while the lamp was burning and knocked on the headboard of my bed and on the wall near the bed, which was not next to the which was not next to the room occupied by the girls, but on an outside wall facing the stable. I carried on a most interesting conversation with her, asking a great many questions, which were answered by knocks. A trumpet was heard in the house all day. The sound came from within the atmosphere. I can give no other description of its effect on our sense of hearing. I wish to state most emphatically that I could tell the difference in the knocks by each ghost just as well as if they had spoken. The knocks made by Maggie were delicate and soft, as if made by a woman's hand, while those made by Bob Nickel were loud and strong, denoting great strength and evidently large hands. When he knocked with these terrible sledgehammer blows, he certainly must have used a large rock or some other heavy object, for such loud knocks were not produced with, with hard knuckles. In July, the phenomenon became so bad that the landlord came and told the Teed family that either Esther, could, that Esther would have to go or they would all have to leave the house. It was decided that Esther should go, which she did, visiting some friends by the name of Van Amberg. From the time she left her home the second time, she was never afterwards troubled with the ghosts. Some years later, she married and went to live in another town where she was interviewed by the present writer in 1907. This account was sworn to by Mr. By, by Mr. Hubble before, before, uh, before a, a notary public. And he asserts under oath that every word of the account is true. He has also produced the, the written confirmatory testimony of a score of still living witnesses of the phenomenon in Amherst. A very similar case occurred in Tennessee in 1818 and is recorded in full by, by M.V. Ingram in this book, The Bell Witch, which, hey, famous, right? Many other cases of a like nature ought to be found in the history of supernatural. For ghosts of the dead through infinite ages have wandered and lurked in Earth's atmosphere, watchful and eager for victims to torture, to follow and kill, or make tremble with fear. Yes, ghosts of the dead, revengeful and evil, still come in hordes from the Stygian shore, Entering houses to permit our maidens, burning and wreaking our homes evermore. We're going to be talking about the next one is the Brick House. The following case is given in full by Mr. W.T. Sneed in his Real Ghost Stories, and I extract from the narrative 
some of the most striking and interesting passages. It is a truly remarkable narrative, well worthy of a careful perusal. Quick drinky, so here we go. Okay. Mr. Ralph Hastings of Broadmeadow, Tegenmouth, wrote in October 1891, enclosing the following extracts from his diary, which he had kept in the haunted house. And we go. I was standing some months, I was spending some months of the summer of 73 at a favorite watering place in the southeast coast. One afternoon, I went to visit some old friends who lived in an old house which stood in a quadrangle and was approached from the church by a narrow lane. Brookhouse was a commodious red brick structure of three stories, faced by a court with its ground floor windows unseen from the outside by reason of the lofty wall which encircled them. On the day in question, as I approached the house from the church side, I happened to glance at the window to the right on the second floor. There I saw, to my astonishment, the apparent figure of Miss B standing partially dressed, arranging her hair and looking intently at me. On entering the house, I was at once shown into the drawing room, and I found Miss B reading. In reply to my question, she told me she had been there an hour. My curiosity was now fully aroused, and I went to the house the next day, July 4th, accompanied by a lady, a mutual friend. We went up into the room in which I had seen the figure, threw the window open, it being very hot, looking on to the garden, and then went downstairs in the drawing room, where we had some music. We went up again in about half an hour's time. The window was shut. We went back into the garden and looked up at that window. Presently, to our horror, a figure appeared resembling Miss B, yet most unlike her. Its fearful eyes were gazing at me without movement and totally expressionless. What, then, caused the arresting of the heart's pulsation, as it felt, and blood that the moment before had burnt as it cursed madly through the veins to be chilled to ice? This, one was face to face with the spirit and withered by the contact. Those eyes, I could see them. I can feel them. After a lapse of nearly 20 years, Miss B had fainted when she saw the shoulders, as she described it, of the figure. I continued gazing spellbound like, like the wedding guest. I was held by the spirit's eye, and I could not choose but look. The dreadful hands were lifted automatically. They rested on the window sash. It came partly down, stayed a moment, then noiselessly closed, and I saw a hand raise and clasp it. I gazed steadfastly throughout. What impressed me strangely was this peculiar what was this peculiarity? That as soon as the sash had passed the face of the ladder uh, the face, the ladder vanished. The hands remained remained. The unreality of the actual movement of the window as it descended also seemed to contradict me. It suggested, for one of a better comparison, the mechanical passage of stage scenery and some sorts of toys that are pulled by wires. It made no noise whatsoever. Now I distinctly recognized the shape as that of Rhoda, Miss B's elder sister, who had been dead some 12 years. We looked again and saw the backs of two hands on the outside of the window, but they did not move it. We then went in, coming out again almost directly, and saw the window nearly closed, then went upstairs to the room, and again I flung the window as wide open as I could go. And before leaving the door open, and before leaving set the door open, with a heavy chair against it. But previous to this, I omitted the mention. As we were looking up at the window, after the appearance of the hands, we saw a horrible object come from the right. The apparition invariably did. It resembled a large white bundle called by Miss B, who had before seen it, the headless woman. It came in front of the window and then began walking backwards and forwards. After a lapse of half an hour, we went upstairs again and found the chair by the window and the door closed, whereupon I wrote it a letter to its effect. Miss B and Mr. H present their compliments to the lady to the Lady Headless, and request her acceptance of this fruit from their garden. They hope it will please, as she has often been seen admiring it. A reply will oblige, but the bearer does not wait for the answer. 
We put the chair once more against the window, placing the fruit and note on it. Two or three times we went up, but nothing had changed. We then went out and stood outside the summer house, whence a clear view of the window could be obtained. Presently, there came forward the headless figure, and distinctly bowed two or three times. Then immediately afterwards, a deafening slam of the door. The apex of this figure, which was, ro which was rotund, i.e. headless, once or twice dilated, and we, figured, and we feared seeing something. We knew not of what it would be. It then vanished, and we saw a beautiful arm come from the curtain and wave to us. Upstairs again, the door was shut, and entering, we saw the chair overturned in the middle of the room, the fruit scattered in all directions, and, to our horror, the note, which I had folded crosswise, was charred at each corner. I took it up, but lacked the courage to open and perhaps find a possible reply. Placing it in a plate, I burnt it. The process was a very slow one, and it distilled the dark mucus. The whimsical idea now possessed me to arrange the room like a theater. The armchair and others I placed facing the stand. On them I laid, I don't even know what this is, antimacassars and books for programs. We then went down to the end of the garden, which commanded a view of the room, and looked. Blank space. Nothing more. Stay. A curious filmy vapor begins to float in the air, which slowly cohered, evolved vague phantasms. They unite and gradually assume a definite shape. The hairless woman fronts us at the window. She vanishes, and an immense sheet is waved twice or thrice from the right side of the window. Something is flung out. We walk quickly up the garden, and there, under the window, lies one of the books. What had hastened our steps was the frantic gesticulating of the servant. She was frightened out of her senses by the peculiar sounds proceeding from the room, but she could not describe them, saying that they seemed to be a terrible hurrying... So yeah, saying that they seemed to be a terrible hurrying to and fro, accompanied by strange noises. We took the Bible and entered the room, which was in disorder. The flower stand was thrown down, the two chairs widely apart. One of the antimacassars was tightly folded up under the recumbent towel horse. The other, with, with the towel, was airing itself on, on the gigantic tree some seven feet away from the window. The next day, we went into that room and discovered an impression in the bed, as though something had lain in it. On closer inspection, we distinctly saw the coverlet gently moving, resembling the very gentle respiration of a body beneath. We returned to the garden, having thrown open the window. After waiting for a long time, we saw what looked like a hand appear on the center of the windowsill. Then, from the curtain, came the white figure. It disappeared, and after a moment or two, the hand also. But there must have been a something besides saw something besides crouching under the window, for it heaved upwards and seemed to fill the window for an instant. It then sank, the hand vanished, and we saw no more. We waited a long time till I spoke of going. I had noticed as a curious thing that almost always when I had wearied of looking, seeing nothing, and about to leave, something was sure to happen. This ends my personal experiences. My health became impaired, and for upwards of two years I was, uh, I was an invalid. But as time wore on and the impressions waned, I gradually recovered. I often wandered back in imagination to the many mysteries that in the that no long ago held sway at the brick house. Chapter 5 Ghost Stories of a More Dramatic Nature. Excuse me. In the cases which are added, which are adduced in the present chapter, the standard of evidence cannot be considered so high. Many of them have been recorded in good faith as actual experiences, but they will probably fall, fail to carry the conviction to the same extent as those which have gone before. Still, many of these narratives are, are highly singular, okay, are, are singularly striking and interesting, and for this reason deserve to be included in this volume. The reader may therefore place any construction he may choose upon these cases, 
as they are presented, not as evidence, but as entertainment. I shall begin with some personal experiences of a Scotch seer who, according to his own accounts, has experienced some of the most dramatic and remarkable manifestations conceivable. Disease Phantoms Mr. Elliot O'Donnell, a man about whom it has been said that the gates of his soul are open on the hillside, has had many strange experiences with spirits, mostly evil and horrible, and has recorded these in his books, Ghosted Phenomena, Byways in the Ghostland, etc., from his, from, from his large writings on his own personal experiences, I cite a few cases to show the character of the phenomena. Quotes. I have, from time to time, witnessed many manifestations, which I believe to be superphysical, both from the peculiar, both from the, ugh, both from the peculiarity of their properties, and from the effect of their presence invariably produced on me, an effect I cannot associate with anything physical. One of the first occult phenomena I remember appeared to me when I was about five years of age. I was then living in a town in the west of England, and had, according to the usual custom, been put to sleep at six o'clock. I had spent a very happy day playing with my favorite toys, soldiers, and not being in the least degree tired, was amusing myself with planning a fresh campaign for the following morning, when I noticed suddenly that the bedroom door, which I distinctly remember my nurse carefully latching, was slowly opening. Thinking this was very curious, but without the slightest suspicion of ghosts, I sat up in bed and watched. The door continued to open, and at last I caught sight of something so extraordinary that my guilty conscience at once associated with the devil with regard to whom I distinctly recollected to have spoken that afternoon in a skeptical, and I frankly admit, very disrespectful manner. But far from feeling the proximity of that heat, which all these professed, which all, which all those professed authority on satanic matters described to Satan, I felt decidedly cold, so cold, indeed, that my hands grew numb and my teeth chattered. At first, I only saw two lights glittering eyes, but I was soon able to perceive that they were set in a huge flat face, covered with fulsome-looking yellow spots, about the size of a threepenny bit. I do not remember noticing any of the other features, save the mouth, which was large and gaping. The body to which the head was attached was quite, was quite nude, and covered all over with spots similar to those on the face. I cannot recall my arms. I'm sorry, I can't recall any arms, though I have vivid recollections of two thick and, to all appearances, jointless legs, by the use of which it left the doorway, and gliding noiselessly over the carpet, approached the empty bed, placed in a parallel position to my own. There it halted, and thrusting its misshapen head forward, it fixed its malevolent eyes on me with a penetrating stare. On this occasion, I was far less frightened than on any of my subsequent experiences with the occult. Why? I can't say. As a manifestation was certainly one of the most hideous I've ever seen. My curiosity, however, was far greater than my fear, and I kept asking myself what the thing was and why it was there. It did not seem to be composed of ordinary flesh and blood, but rather of some luminous matter that resembles the light emanating from a glowworm. After remaining in the same attitude for what seemed to me a long time, it gradually receded, and assuming all of a sudden horizontal altitude or attitude, passed headfirst through the wall, opposite to where I sat. Next day, I made a sketch of the apparition and showed it to my relatives, who, of course, told me I had been dreaming. About two weeks later, I was ill in bed with a painful, if not actually dangerous disease. I was given an account of this manifestation at I see. I was giving an account of this manifestation at a lecture I delivered two or three years ago in B. And when I had finished speaking, I was called aside by one of the audience who very shyly told me that he too had had a similar experience. Prior to being attacked, by diphtheria, he had seen a queer-looking apparition which had approached his bedside and leaned over him. 
He assured me that he had been fully awake at the time and had applied tests to prove that the fathom was entirely objective. A number of other cases, too, have been reported to me in which various species of phantasms have been seen before various illnesses. Hence, I believe that certain spirits are, are symbolical of certain diseases, if not the actual creators of the, of the bacillae or which diseases arrive. Okay? Arise. To these phantasms, I have given the name of Morbus, the tale of the mummy. During one of my journeys in Paris, says Mr. Elliot O'Donnell in his Byways of Ghostland, I met a Frenchman who, he informed me, had just returned from the East. I asked him if he had brought back any curios such as vases, funeral urns, weapons, or amulets. Yes, lots, he replied. Two cases full, but no mummies. Mon Dieu. No mummies. You ask me why? Ah, thereby hangs a tale. If you will have the patience, I'll tell you. The following is the gist of his narrative. Some seasons ago, I traveled up the Nile as far as Eswood, and when there, managed to pay a visit to the grand ruins of Thebes. Among the various treasures I brought away with me was a mummy. I found it lying in an enormous lidless sarcophagus close to a mutilated statue of, uh, of Anubis. On my return to Aswit, A-S-S-I-U-T, so we'll just figure that one out, I had the mummy placed in my tent and thought no more of it till something awoke me with startling suddenness in the night. Then, obeying a, a peculiar impulse, I turned over on my side and looked in the direction of my treasure. Now, you've got to remember, the knights in the Sudan at this time of year are brilliant. One can even see to read, and every object in the desert is almost as clearly visible as by day. But I was quite startled by the whiteness of the glow which rested on the mummy, the face of which was immediately opposite mine. The remains, those of Metokarima, Metamakarima, lady of the college of the god, of the god Amun-Ra, were swathed in bandages, some of which were worn away in parts or become loose. And the figure, plainly discernible, was that of a shapely woman with elegant bust, well-formed limbs, rounded arms, and small hands. The thumbs were slender, and the fingers, each of which was suddenly bandaged, long and tapering. The neck was full, the cranium rather long, the nose aquiline, the chin firm. Imitation eyes, brows, and lips were painted on the wrappings, and the effect thus produced, and in the phosphorescent glare of the moonbeams, was very weird. It was quiet along on the alone. It was quiet along on the along the tent. The only European who accompanied me, having stayed in the town by preference, and my servants being encamped at one hundred or so yards from me on the ground. Sound travels far in the desert, but the silence now was absolute, and, though I listened attentively, I could not detect the slightest noise. Man, beast, or insect were abnormally still. There was something in the air, too, which struck me as unusual, an odd, clammy coldness that reminded me at once of the catacombs in Paris. I had hardly, however, conceived the resemblance when a saw blow, Gentle, but very distinct. Hang on a second. So the thrill of horror through me. That is SOB, and then there's two dashes and low. So we're just going to go there. Through me. It was ridiculous, absurd. It could not be. And I fought against the idea as to whence the sound had proceeded. As someone too utterly fantastic. Something too utterly fantastic. Too utterly impossible. I tried to occupy my mind with other thoughts. The frivolities of Cairo, the casinos of Nice, but all to no purpose. And soon, on my eager throbbing ear, there again fell that sound, that low and gentle sob. Ah, okay, that's what he's saying. My hair stood on end. This time there was no doubt, no possible manner of doubt, the mummy lived. I looked at it aghast. I strained my vision to detect any movement in its limbs, but none was perceptible. Yet, 
the noise had come from it. It had breathed, breathed, and even as I hissed the word uncautiously through my clenched lips, the bosom of the mummy rose and fell. A frightful terror seized me. I tried to shriek. Oops, hang on, jumped on me here. I tried to shriek to my servants. I could not ejaculate a syllable. I tried to close my eyelids, but they were held open as in a vice. Again, there came a sob that was immediately succeeded by a sign, and a tremor ran through the figure from head to foot. One of his hands then began to move. The fingers clutched the air convulsively, then grew rigid, then curled slowly into the palms, then suddenly straightened. The bandages concealing them from view then fell off, and to my agonized sight were disclosed objects that struck me as strangely familiar. There is something about fingers, a marked individuality, I never forget. No two persons' hands are alike, and in these fingers, in their excessive whiteness, round knuckles, and blue veins, I read a likeness whose prototype, struggle how I would, I could not recall. Gradually, the hand moved upwards, and reaching the throat, the fingers set to work at once to remove the wrappings. My terror was now sublime. I dared not imagine. I dared not for one instant think what I should see. And there was no getting away from it. I could not stir an inch. And the ghastly revelation would take place within a yard of my face. One by one, the bandages came off. A glimmer of skin, pale as marbles. The beginning of the nose. The whole nose, the upper lip exquisitely, delicately cut, the teeth white, and even on the whole, but here and there shining gold filling. The under lip, soft and gentle, a mouth I knew, but God where in my dreams, in the wild fantasies that oft times visited by that oft times visited by pillow at night in delirium, in reality, where? Mon Dieu, where? The encasing continued. The chin next a chin that was purely feminine, purely classical. Then the upper part of the head, the hair long, black, and luxuriant, the forehead low and white, the brows black, firmly penciled, and last of all, the eyes. And as they met my frenzied gaze, smiled, smiled right down to the depths of my living soul. I recognized them. They were the eyes of my mother, my mother who had died in my boyhood. Seized with a madness that knew no bounds, I sprang to my feet. The figure rose and confronted me. I flung open my arms to embrace her, the woman of all women in the world I loved the best, the only woman I had ever loved. Shrinking from my touch, okay, shrinking from my touch, she cowered against the side of the tent. I fell on my knees before her and kissed. What? Not the feet of my mother, but those of the long buried dead. Sick with, re sick with repulsion and fear, I looked up, and there, bending over me and peering into my eyes, was the face, the fleshless, moldering face of the foul and barely recognizable corpse. With a shriek of horror, I rolled backwards and, springing to my feet, prepared to fly. I glanced at the mummy. It was lying on the ground, stiff and still, every bandage in its place, while standing over it, a look of fiendish gleam in its light, dog-like eyes, was the figure of Anubis, lurid and menacing. The voices of my servants, assuring me that they were coming, broke the silence, and in an instant the apparition vanished. I had had enough of the tent, however, at least for the night, and seeking refuge in the town. I whiled away the hours till morning with a fragrant cigar and a novel directly, a novel, Directly I had breakfast. I took the mummy back to Thebes and left it there. No thank you, Mr. O'Donnell. I collect my I collect many kinds of curios, but no more mummies. Alright, that's gonna do it for tonight. That was pretty cool. Next uh next one's gonna be face slapped by a ghost, and uh we'll continue that next Sunday. For everybody that hung with me, thank you so much. For hanging out in the chat room and i really appreciate it and for attending I, I really appreciate it and again we'll continue next sunday with this book it's a great book man good stuff good stuff it even has me looking over my shoulder sometimes right 
All right. So uh, tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m., my guest will be Mary, uh, Mary Rodwell. We'll be talking about Star Sea Children, and that should be an interesting conversation. And, uh, again, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and spending time here. It's always nice to start our week out with this, right? All right. So if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. We're just trying to get the word out of our, our little show. And please stand by next week uh, or, or the rest of the week. I'm going to be putting together a uh, thing, thing, an event for for everyone. So uh, that'll be coming out like midweek next week, so I can get that advertised and everything for you guys. And I think you'll like what I, what, what this next the next ghost event is with the team. Anyway, thank you guys so much for coming, and I do appreciate it. And this book can be found online at the Gutenberg Project. And again, it's, it's a free book, so you can find it, like I said, at the, at the Gutenberg Project. And you can also get it through Amazon for free, uh, through some other booksellers for free as well. All right, guys, I will see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening.